The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's all the creation groaning. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Pray with me. Father, there is a hope tied to our salvation that Romans 8 touches on there. A hope that is not yet seen and it continues on to say a hope for which we patiently wait. The redemption of our bodies. The fixing of all that has gone wrong here. We groan awaiting that. We have already been saved and we are being saved, but we will be saved yet in the future. And we groan as we wait for that. Not only us, but the creation as well. The physical creation also groans as it awaits that day that you are bringing when you will change it all and fix it. You've given us the first fruits of the Spirit now. It has begun, but it is not yet complete. The fullness is still coming, and so we wait and pray and ask you to bring it. In the meantime, we ask you to help us to wait well. We ask this, Lord, that we ask that you would do a work in us that would that would enable us to be men and women who live here now. Lacking, knowing that there's more to come, would you enable us to live here now, still filled with joy, colored by hope, expectant hope? Lord, help us with that. And I, and I pray, Lord, that you would use the text that we're going to look at this morning to help us a little bit with that. And by your Spirit's power, you would orient our minds and our hearts to kind of get us around this passage so that we would be a changed people. Lord, I pray this for my brothers and sisters here and, and for myself as I have great need for this. Help me and each one of us here to, to live hoping in and looking towards the future and, and still have joy in the present. 
open up to us this passage this morning in the book of Deuteronomy and teach us, I pray, and cause Your Spirit to run through this room and and for those who are here and for those who will hear it later to, to do a work in our hearts. I, I pray You would send Him to do that, that Christ would be glorified and that Your church will be built. And I pray this in His name. Amen. So we're still in the book of Deuteronomy, and this morning we come to chapter 26. And as I mentioned last week, 26 is a marker in the flow of this whole book. We've been looking at this for quite a while, and so it's easy to kind of lose track of where we are, or if you're relatively new here, to, to not know where we are, what's going on. So, as a refresher, Moses spoke the contents of this book of Deuteronomy all in one day. It's one great big long speech, or really rather a couple of speeches with a few breaks in between, and he's giving it to the whole people of Israel assembled in the plains of Moab on the banks of the Jordan River about to cross over into the land of Canaan and then to conquer it. And what he's delivering to them is this covenant from God, a treaty, a covenant that God had first made with the people 40-some years before back on Mount Horeb, and he's now reissuing it and, and reiterating it, reaffirming it with this generation, establishing what was to be a pattern, theoretically, on and on and on. Each new generation saying, yes, that's as they became adults, that's us. That's us. So he's telling them what they've already heard before about who God is, who they are, how they are in relation to him. And he's giving them the basics of that in a thumbnail sketch, the Ten Commandments. And then... The, Elaborating on all the details for chapter after chapter after chapter. And that elaboration, the details, that's ending today. Here in 26. And it comes to an end with worship. Which is how it started back in chapter 12. So the bookends of this section are about worship. But this morning, worship it's worship with a little bit of a different emphasis. My hope is that God would use this passage, as I prayed, that He would use this passage to to build in us, to stir in us some hope and some joy. A, a joy that is here and now and lasts beyond just today or tomorrow, but, but lasts through this life and is connected to a hope that is in the future and that is coming. So what I, I'm not praying is that He would just inform us of some stuff. I hope that he will use it to actually create joy. Really. Hope. Really. In us. Not just for today, but that lasts. May that be the case for us. We need God's Spirit to do it, though. And as I say that about us and you, I'm really talking about me. I am especially burdened today, this week, this month. You, you have those periods in your life, I have those periods in my life, when I've been burning the candle at all four ends, you know, both ends and a couple places in the middle, and it's gone. It's just gone. I'm so tired and so done. Have you ever been there? And so what I want to happen today, by the grace of God, what I want to happen today is that I would not just get a little more information. I already know this stuff. I'm telling you, I mean, I already know it. But you already know it too. 
I mean, maybe there'll be some new angles and some new thoughts and stuff, but, but the essence of what I'm going to talk about, you already know. I already know. So just knowing more is not that helpful. May he actually do something with it in our hearts. That's my hope and my prayer, that God by His Spirit would actually do something to produce joy and hope in me and in you today. And so I'm going to read this, this text, it's all of chapter 26, and talk about the details and make a couple of observations, as is my usual habit. So, Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 to 19. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time, and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which You, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people, Israel, and the ground that you have given to us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. 
You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You've declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes and His commandments and His rules and will obey His voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession as He has promised you and that you are to keep all His commandments and that He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations that He has made and that you should be a people holy to the Lord your God as He promised. Deuteronomy 26. The passage has three main sections, verses 1 to 11, 12 to 15, and then 16 to the end. Three passages, and with each section there's something slightly different going on. It starts in verse 1 with a worship ritual of sorts that was to be done after they come into the land. It's probably setting up a, a pattern to be continued but this is the, to be done when they first come into the land and settle it. It, it. it says, after you've taken possession, you live in it. So not when they first invade, but after all the fighting has ended and they, they come to their farms and they settle, they have rest, this is what they are to do. Persons to take some of the first fruit, the first of the harvest, which wouldn't obviously be fruit, it would be often grain or it could be fruit, but the first things harvested first fruits, take it and go up to the place which the Lord will choose to make His name dwell. Talked about this before. God was going to choose a place in the midst of this land that He was giving them. As an inheritance, He was going to pick a place and He was going to put His name there. That is His person. He uniquely would be there. And they were to go up to that place with the first fruits, the basket there, and they were to perform this ritual of sorts sketched out here say to the priest today i declare that i have received the land that the lord swore to give seeing it emphasized again the land that the lord swore to give and here's the evidence here's the fruit of it lay it down there at the altar and then he is to say something and look at what he is to say what is he to proclaim but what's he saying there in the presence of the priest Speaking to the Lord, it begins kind of impersonally, but by the middle of verse 10, he realizes that he realizes I'm talking to the Lord. He talks about which you, O Lord, have given me. What is he to proclaim there in the presence of the priest and before the Lord? He is recounting the story of God's deliverance. It's right there. This is a preach the gospel to yourself sort of passage with a slight different angle. Verse 5, it begins, A wandering Aramean was my father. Wandering. Speaking about Jacob here. Wandering like, like a nomad, without a home. He was a sojourner. He had no place that was his. And, and the word can also have this, this uh, kind of flavor of frail, weak and vulnerable. My father Jacob was homeless and frail. Who were we that anybody should even care about us? And my father, to save his very life, went into Egypt. And while he was there, he sojourned there, few in number, but became numerous and strong. But still was under the thumb, oppressed by Egypt, who treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us labor 
pain. We were somewhere in Egypt, but we didn't have a place that was ours. We were sojourners until the Lord delivered us with a mighty hand and brought us into this place and gave us this land like he promised. That's that's a theme there again. He brought us out of Egypt and brought us into this place and gave us this land. Verse 9. Here's the evidence. The fruit. And so he worships. That is, he rejoices for all of the good that the Lord has done for him in this land. The next section then skips ahead a few years and tells them what they are to do in the year of tithing, the third year. This is reflecting what we see we saw back in chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, the regular pattern of every third year they were to, to bring in the tithe. And different than going up to the central place where God would choose to make His name dwell, this was to be done in all the local towns. So He's saying... After you do that, after you follow that passage and you collect all of the tithe and you keep it in the town and you give it out to the widow, orphan, sojourner, and Levite, those who don't have access to the land and need this blessing, here's what you say. And really, this is, this is a prayer. Essentially, verses 13 and 14 are a prayer. And he says, Lord, I have obeyed you. And, and countless times in various different ways, he says, I have done what you said. I have not done this. I have done this. We have walked in obedience. Verse 15. Therefore then, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless. So here's all the the blessing that you've given us and we've given it out. And so now I look to you and say, will you now bless? You have said that there is a path to walk a path of obedience on which your blessing rests, so would you please then keep your word and bless. That's the prayer. He prays that there at the end of in verse 15. In the third section, verse 16 and following, is the, a concluding statement that Moses uses to wrap this up, and, and that's where the, the covenant is kind of reaffirmed. He has the two parties there. The, first, the people. Here on this day, you people have said, the Lord is our God, we will obey Him. And the Lord has said, they are my people, I will bless them. I will lift them up high above all the other nations. I will exalt them in fame and in power and in blessing. So there's the covenant kind of reissued and sealed made 40 years before when it was officially enacted, but it's kind of brought up again here. The people and the Lord buying into it. Now, there's a question. What happens about that if it's broken? And we'll see that kind of in the next section as we get into the blessings and curses. But that's as far as it goes today. That's our passage. Three sections. What are we to make of this? Well, there are three different things going on here. Two of them are about little ceremonies of of worship rituals, if you will. That's where I'm going to be spending the the bulk of my focus. I'm going to be looking mostly at those first two sections, leaving the covenant and its stipulations for for later. I'm going to make two observations and then kind of try to tie them together at the end. So let me make my first observation with this. God is about giving something 
marvelous to you. God is about giving something marvelous to you. His beloved child, and I say that in the singular. Of course, it applies in the plural to his people, his children, but it's, there's a singular angle in this passage too. This is an individual who's doing this. It's about you. Get this directly out of verse 11. You shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God is giving to you. It's right there. But before I go much further, I need to be clear about something. When I'm talking about you in the singular, his beloved child, I'm talking to Christians here. So if, if that's not you, if, if you're not a Christian, then you need to realize that what we're talking about is what could be for you. But the moment isn't. I'm not going to be clarifying that constantly, but I just want to be clear right here at the start that you is a Christian. So if you are a believer, if you are someone who has trusted Christ and His cross only to remove your sin from you, then God has something marvelous that He is bringing to you. And if it's not you, trust Christ and He'll bring that marvelous thing to you too. There is much good here. Rejoice in all the good that the Lord has given you. That is really wide. What should we look at? What should we focus on? Well, what does this passage focus on? The land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Some variation of that phraseology shows up in verses 1, 2, 3, 9, and 10. Just in the first section. comes up again a little later. But five times in the first section he refers to that in some way or another. In addition, the, the whole harvest and first fruit idea is that here's what's come from the land. It's right, it's very tangible there. And twice he talks about this idea of place, the place where the Lord would choose his name, and how he brought us to this place and gave us this land. So in mind, when we thought all the good the Lord has given you, something that we need to be focusing on here is He has given a place. That's kind of what's front and center here. So, when He preaches the story of deliverance to Himself, He centered on, in His mind, place. He skips Mount Horeb. He skips the whole covenant thing. It's about a place. God has given a place, a land, flowing with milk and honey to His people. So let me refine my, my observation by saying this. God is about giving something marvelous to you, a land that He swore to our fathers to give to us. But before we move directly over and apply that to us, we need to, we need to pause for a second. We need to think for a moment, what is the land? What is being pointed to or typified, modeled in the land? And we need to pause here because some of us, immediately, as soon as we hear land, we either mentally skip to an American concept of land and think that what is going on here is some 
I've heard people teach this, some affirmation of personal property rights. And so we, we look at this and say, oh, good, God's giving land. What God means is that we have the right to own property. Well, maybe, but that's not the point. Probably more of us, though, when we hear land in a context like this, we immediately pull out our old maps and we try to plot out on a map the prophecies and the fulfillments and begin to think about eschatology and what God's going to do when with whom. And there is stuff in the future to think about, but that's not the point. We need to step back further than that. Think of it as maybe rising up in elevation and get a big view of things. We've got to think about the big picture when we think about land. Why does God create land in the first place? Have you thought about that? Why is there a physical world? So, obviously, I'm certain. Big picture here. I'm moving back a ways. Why is there a place at all? So that God can have a canvas upon which He can paint. To display something. To, to, to paint it out. To sketch something. And then to fill it in with all kinds of colors and to texture it. What God is doing in creating a place, a, a, a creation at all, is He is he's creating a realm in which God can display His character in all of its complexity and beauty and vastness, particularly in conjunction with people, those made in His image. He makes a place, and in the middle of it, He puts a people who will walk with Him, experiencing Him in righteousness, reflecting Him out to everything around them, governing what He has made in perfection, living in perfect communion, loving Him, and loving each other. This is the creation. And then Genesis 3 happens and wrecks it all. But we need to, to have a mindset in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and figure out something. He's doing something there. He's creating something that would be tremendous and eternal glory for Him and good for those people that He puts there. They walk with Him in the cool of the day, in a garden that yields up the bounty and the blessing of God that all comes from God's hand. And it results in a praise of Him and an orientation towards Him and a blessing for people. I mean, that is, it's a marvelous world. And then it is wrecked in Genesis 3. Scrapped. Let's do something else. No. No. Satan intervenes in Genesis 3 and wrecks that. And there's a, there's a 
an atmosphere of conflict there between God and Satan. So it's not out of place to put it like this. Satan laughs and chuckles as he sees it all fall into sin and watches God kick him out of the garden. This is great. Ruined it. And it is, it, it is as if God says to Satan, sit down, watch and learn. If you ever had somebody say something like that, I, I got it, watch. And they begin to go over here and they begin to tinker. And at first you say, I have no idea how that relates to this. And they put something together and they tape on a little bit of this and they add in this and they whip this up in a bowl. I have no idea what's going on with that. But slowly the pieces begin to come together. And say, oh, that connects. Uh-huh, that's interesting. wonder how that's going to work with. That's what God is doing as, the, as we progress through the Bible. He is not scrapping his original plan and throwing it away. I want a place where I can dwell with my image bearers, blessing them and receiving from them worship, displaying my myriad characteristics. I want that place. It has been ruined. I'm going to get it. And the first step is he gets himself a people. calls Abraham. He draws out Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he is a wandering Aramean, a sojourner with no place to be. It's not going to work with just a people, with no home. He takes them into Egypt, but it's not going to work in Egypt. He can't pour out his blessing on Egypt. Egypt will take it. He can't have his righteousness set up in Egypt. The Egyptians won't have it. There needs to be a place for God to dwell with His people and bless them in righteousness. So He gives them the land of Canaan, right? Sort of. Yes, obviously He gave them Canaan. That's where our passage comes in. He gives them Canaan. He says to them, here's your place. And in this place we will together have rest. I will dwell here in your midst. And you will dwell here. And I will protect you. And I will bless you. And here is what I expect of you. To walk in righteousness and love one another. And love me above all things. And it's going to be perfect. Eden all over again. Until it isn't. Why isn't it? So we're, still, we're still at the big picture here. You've got to see what's going on in the Bible. Why isn't it good enough? Why isn't Canaan the end of the road? Because God's goal cannot be accomplished in that Canaan with that law. And even if it was, what about all the rest of the earth? There's still more. God is still about producing a people in a place where they will walk with Him and dwell with Him in righteousness. It's still God's plan and He's still working towards it. And as Paul elaborates, that's actually what he originally planned from the very beginning. What he promised to Abraham was not just Canaan, it was the whole earth. 
all of the world. Write down Romans 4.13 and look at that later. Paul's language is very clear. God's promise to Abraham was that he and his people after him would be heirs of the world. Not just a little land. Paul's using a, a little wrinkle in language here. In one language, you've got a, wor a word that can be land or earth. We usually take it as land, land of Canaan. But you switch to another language and the word can only be earth, world. And that's the word that Paul uses in Romans. Abram is promised, Abraham and his seed are promised the world. What God is doing for Abraham and his offspring is giving to them, giving to you. This is about you personally if you are one of Abraham's offspring. Giving to you a place that is vast. A place in which He will dwell with you. A place in which His righteousness, His justice will reign. His beauty will be shown. His blessing will be poured out in abundance. His glory will cover all the earth as the waters cover the sea. You've got to think about that. Why do you have to think about that? Well, like I said at the beginning, you probably already sort of know that. Maybe not all those details. Maybe not quite in the same way, but you probably already envision that there is a future coming. Not here yet, but there is a future coming which everything's going to be fixed. You probably already know that. But you've got to think about it. And you have to think about it in weeks like this past one. On days like yesterday. Whatever that was for you. A few of us, I think, came to the VBS uh, Friday night closing program. And there was in that program, there was a video shown about uh, Riley Hoff and the uh, VBS Missions Project. BBS program collected fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars for Riley to help offset his medical bills. Well, the soundtrack to that video, there will be a day with no more tears, with no more pain, etc., etc. That was the soundtrack. I don't know who sings the song. I don't know what all the words are to it. Do you really believe that? There actually will be a day like that. What's the point of pairing that song with that kind of video? And I know most of us didn't see it. It, it's, it was a video that was showing slides of Riley in various stages of his cancer treatment. Right? For those who don't know, Riley Huff was um, an eight, nine-year-old boy, if I get the dates right. Correct me if I'm wrong who over the course of several years dealt with cancer and is still kind of on the, the back end of that, still dealing with many things related to a family here in our church. 
What's the point of taking pictures of him in the various stages of agony? There was one picture there I thought, that looks about like he was at the point when they were, in the words of his parents, 50-50 if he's going to die tonight. What's the point of pairing pictures like that with a song like, There Will Be a Day? To give some perspective to it? To give some hope for that day? To, to, in a sense, to underline, this is, there's something wrong here, isn't there? Something wrong with little boys suffering like this? Little girls suffering like this? People suffering like this? Something wrong with that? There will be a day when that's no more. Really, there will be a day when that's no more. There will be a day when the problems that you're facing will be no more. There will be a day when you don't run around crazy worrying about the relationship issue that you have, the financial complication you have, your own health concerns. God is about giving something marvelous to you. Really. A place. A land of awesome bounty. But that's not really the main point. The, the bounty at the center of this land is God with people. And there will be a day He is making that happen when one day again He will walk in the cool of the day with you. Thwarted, yes, but no, he's going to bring that about. What a good God that is. There is a God out there, the only God who is. There is a God out there who is committed to making this a reality for his people. He doesn't have to be. He doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't have to make a place like this. He doesn't have to make us at all. But He does. And He has promised, I'm going to bring this about. And if we could get our minds around that, if, if even at this moment, if you're getting your mind around that a little bit, two things should grow in you, joy and hope. Those two things naturally grow in us in all situations in life when our perspective changes and we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Joy, thank goodness there's light. Hope, the light's coming. That happens in life when our perspective is enhanced by a little more positive information. I'm thinking this through this week, and as I said at the beginning, in, in a lot of ways I am... So at the end of my rope. So I'm, I'm trying to think this through. I'm going to say something like, your perspective is supposed to change into joy and hope. Is that really true of you? Is that actually going to happen in you, Steve? Or are you just going to say that and then move on? Get on the plane and fly away. And you know, I, I've got to say yes and no. Yes, it changes a little bit, but no, it doesn't change 
right away, completely. I'm still struggling. But there is more than there was. There is some joy. There is some hope. And I am convinced, I am convinced that God is in this for my good. God is in this for your good. We are on a trajectory where He takes you to a marvelous place and dwells with you there. And He has given you what is supposed to be a rock-solid proof of that. He has given you the first fruits. That kind of leads me to my second point, my second observation. God is about giving something marvelous to you. And having understood what God intends to do, our response is supposed to be rejoice in what He has already given and hope in what He is yet to give. We should rejoice in the first fruits and hope for the fullness. I take this from the two different responses that God calls for His people to, to give to Him in, in those, the first two sections there. Taking the evidence of what is already there, what the evidence of what they already have, the first fruits, they go into the temple, they go into the presence of God, and they worship, verse 10, which is to say they rejoice, same thing. A little aside here, worshiping and rejoicing, same thing. You can't worship if you're not rejoicing. And if you are rejoicing, you're worshiping. They go into His presence and they worship. They rejoice over what He has given them. And then a couple years later, oddly, after giving them all this tithe, come back into my presence, but it's not the same response. It's an ask for more. Ask for next year's crop, sure, but ask for what I promise in the covenant to, to lift you up high above all the nations and exalt you. Ask for that. There's more to give. And so there's those two different things there. Both, both lived out in the presence of the Lord. The first man, if you will, break these into two sections here. The first man is happy, rejoicing, and the second one is hope-filled. There's more to come. Give that. The first man says, look what's been given. The second man says, give more. The first man praises God for what he has, and the second man prays to God to have more. That's a dynamic here. Look back at what has come, and look forward, hopefully, at what will be. That dynamic is important for us to observe, to embrace and when we look back at what we have, what's the first fruits? Not just barley or wheat or a cool house or healthy kids. The New Testament says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Romans 8, I read it before. The New Testament says in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit is the down payment on the inheritance that we have not yet received in fullness. So we look back at what we have. What do you have if you are a Christian? What has God given to you that says, 
I'm about something really, I'm about giving you something marvelous. I'm about giving you the dwelling of God with men and women. I'm about giving you my blessing, the experience of relationship with me. I'm about giving you my righteousness, a love for others and a love. I'm about giving that to you in a place. You don't have it all yet, but you have a little bit of it because you have the Spirit. Does not the Holy Spirit live in you? And He will not disown Himself. He will not turn away from you. He lives in you. If you are a Christian, it's for you, that my disclaimer from earlier. We have the first fruit of the Spirit. He has kept His promise thus far. There is more to come, but He has kept it thus far. How does that produce joy in you? Not just intellectually. Not just, I know I have the Spirit, therefore I'm happy. No. I have the Spirit, I commune with Him, therefore I know joy. That's how the first fruit produces joy in our lives as Christians. I have the first fruits of the Spirit. I commune with Him. I experience. You can, you can actually experience. Not the fullness. It's not here yet, but you can actually experience the dwelling of God with you. He dwells in you. You can actually experience the blessing of God on your life, if not in your bank account, in your heart. Which is where it really matters. You can actually experience being changed. Growing in righteousness. Growing in holiness. Which is a good thing. And is actually a necessary thing. For the receiving of the fullness that is to come. You notice the conditionality of this passage? Twelve and following. I have done this, I have done this, I have done this. Therefore bless. I know we Christians, we get really uncomfortable with this sort of idea. Shouldn't He bless me regardless of what I do? Think about that for a second. Shouldn't He bless me regardless of what I do? No. He shouldn't. That would be to encourage you to walk into death. He says, here's the path of blessing, walk it. Now, touching this a little bit last week, I'll say more about it next time. And another level... Absolutely. He has covered your sin in the cross. Absolutely. But think what you're saying when you say, shouldn't He bless me regardless of what I do? That's nonsense. Walk this path. Walk with me. That's where blessing is found. Now, I will bless you in discipline on the other path, but we probably don't want that. We want... To walk in righteousness with Him and experience His favor rather than His discipline. And we can walk this path a little more, a little more, a little more consistently because we have the first fruit, the Spirit given to us to move us to follow His decrees, says Jeremiah. 
The Spirit, who is grace to us, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives here in this present age while we wait for Him to come and bring the fullness. We have the first fruit, which should give us joy now. And the first fruit working in us actually gives us hope. I'm being changed. I'm going to walk after Him and experience His blessing poured on me. We are to be holy as He is holy. And the Spirit makes us that day by day by day. So He enables something that He requires. Again, think about that. That is a good God. He requires something from you, and He gives you His Spirit to enable it. We should say, thank you. We should say, thank you. You are creating a place in which I can walk with you, and you've given me a little bit of that now. Thank you. And I'll experience a little bit more of that today and tomorrow by your power given to me. Thank you. And you will one day come back and bring it all in fullness. Thank you. The gospel has won something marvelous for you, Christian. A dwelling with him. And because of what God has done in Christ, you can today you can Rejoice and be filled with hope. That's my concluding sentence. Because of what God has done for you in Christ, you can today rejoice and be filled with hope. Let me pray. Father, I pray you would work this into us. Maybe for some of us here, what we need is for you to expand our thinking and our seeing about the big picture. Do that. Maybe for some of us, what we need is a fresh filling of and communing with the Holy Spirit. If that's what's needed, Lord, do that. Maybe there are some here, Lord, that need you to open our eyes. Lead us to faith for the first time. And if that's the case, do that, I pray. We are dependent on You, a good God, who is accomplishing something marvelous for us. We thank You that You have brought some of it now in the first fruits. We pray, enable us to walk after You and bring the fullness of it in the future. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.